Well, good morning. I am here this morning. I want to first thank Christian and Tim for covering for me last week. As you probably were aware, I had a sniffle, so it was incumbent upon me to stay at home since we've told all you to stay at home if you happen to have any symptoms of sickness. That's about all it was, was a sniffle, so I'm thankful for that. I have to say that last Sunday was the first time I sat in front of a TV and watched a service since June, and I am so thankful to be here with you instead. And I know many of our folks that have to be at home for health concerns, they would like to be here as well. So we want to pray to an end, earn end for this. Let's join together our hearts in prayer as we start our time of worship around the Word of God. Our great God in heaven, our Father who loves us, We come to you this morning because we stand in Christ. We stand in his love. We have been encompassed by your grace and mercy and the sacrifice of your son on our behalf. And our hearts are filled with praise and worship this morning, giving thanks to you for being a loving God, a rescuing, a saving God, a God that is filled with love towards sinners and is gracious towards us in bringing a salvation that is so free. Thank you for Jesus Christ, who was willing to become one of us and to bear our sins on a cross. We thank you that he has risen from the dead. He's ascended on his throne, and he rules the nations today. And we can have confidence in his sovereignty and in his power. We thank you as well for your spirit that inhabits all those who believe in Christ energizing us to worship you even this morning, to love you and to serve you, and making it possible for us, Father, to enter into your presence and give you praise and thanksgiving and to have fellowship with you all because of Christ. We thank you in his name. Amen. Please join me in John chapter 11. John chapter 11. We're going to pick up where we left off a couple of weeks ago. In verse 17 is where I'm going to start reading. John 11, verse 17, I'd read down through verse 37. You can follow along with me. John 11, verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that he had been in the tomb four days, speaking of Lazarus. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here, and he is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, 
but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not this man, who opened the eyes of the blind man, have kept this man also from dying? It is my hope that as we look at this passage, we see the atmosphere, we see the scene of death that has surrounded the passing of a man that Jesus, according to the first part of the chapter, deeply loved. The chapter also tells us that Jesus loved Mary and Martha as well. So this is an atmosphere that is bathed in love, yet it is showered with the darkness of death. And I know that many times in our world, the culture that we live in, death is sometimes minimized. People tend to want to joke it off at times. You've heard the expression, die young and make a pretty corpse. We may joke about that, but people don't actually think that, do they? And if anything, the coronavirus has shown us that. Men live in fear of death. We started this study in the first 16 verses of John chapter 11, where these two ladies that Jesus loved sent a message, an appeal to the Jesus, come quickly. The man that you love is deeply sick. And before Jesus arrived in Bethany, Lazarus did pass away. And that brings us to our study this morning, which focuses on the promise of life that Jesus brings. And rather than simply look at this story in John 11 as an isolated, though magnificent, miracle, it is important that we see this scene is really a picture of Christ coming to our world of darkness, coming to a place that is consigned to death because of sin. And Jesus comes to rescue. Jesus comes to bring resurrection life. That's what this story is teaching us. Our study continues this morning as we examine verses 17 down through verse 37. And it's here that Jesus actually travels to Bethany, though he comes just to the outskirts of the village, as we see in verse 30. He reveals to the troubled sisters of Lazarus his promise of bringing resurrection life. And then Jesus has a conversation with both Martha and Mary, setting the stage for the miracle that's going to open the eyes of faith in some, but would fuel the hatred of others who would seek his death. It is the resurrection of Lazarus that pressed the events forward to Calvary and the necessary sacrifice of the Lamb of God for the sins of his people. And again, while we're tempted to focus only on the grand miracle itself, the resurrection of Lazarus is really a picture of the state of humanity. The state that is, of humanity is held captive by sin, and the result of that sinful captivity is what holds all men and women in dread. That is our own mortality, and the final stroke of sin's curse against us 
which is death. And even Christians, though we may claim we don't fear death, we feel an apprehension towards it, don't we? None of us rush there too quickly. It is the gospel of Christ alone that can restore men and women from the curse of death and the final judgment of our souls. Death is the thing most feared by men, and it is the cause of our anxieties and our uncertainties in this life. It is that which is most persistently resisted, and yet man is unable to prevent its coming in the end. I think that many of us probably have childhood memories that you would regard as your earliest thoughts. None of us are going to remember when we were born. I doubt that anybody here can remember the first year that you lived. But all of us have those earliest memories, and I have a few of my own, and a couple of those earliest memories I actually have dates for. For instance, I have a picture in my mind of my grandmother on my mom's side who died while I was a toddler, but I have a picture of the home and the street that she lived in. And I have an approximate date of that memory because of when she passed away. But there is a very significant picture that I have in my mind. I am picturing myself at about four years old, standing in the living room, looking at the television set. And I know the date of this event. It was November 25 of 1963. And the reason that I remember it, some of you folks that lived back then know what I'm talking about. There's a picture of a coffin on a cart drawn by horses with a flag draped over it. I'm referring to JFK's procession to the cemetery. It was televised. And the thing that I most distinctly remember about that event, even at four years old, was the gloom of that moment. I can still feel it. I can still picture it. And I was too young to understand life or death. I was too young to understand the assassination of a president. But I kind of liken it to watching golf on TV. There's a quietness to it that isn't at a football game on TV. You can hear the birds chirping. The announcers are very quiet. In a similar way, JFK's memorial was that way. There was an atmosphere of darkness and sorrow and sadness. That's what Jesus walked into when he stepped into Bethany. There was the darkness and the gloom of death. There was sorrow. There was grief. And in the midst of this, this very critical passage here in John chapter 11 shows us a Savior that walks into the realm of death. And what does he do? He promises life. And the glory of this miracle that he's about to accomplish will push forward the events that will find Jesus nailed to a cross and bearing the sins of his people because of his love for him, for them. Jesus walks into the darkness of Bethany because of his love for Lazarus and Mary and Martha. It is one of our great hymns that we sing together, usually around Good Friday service. What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the, what? Dreadful curse for my soul. What is pictured in John 11 is the dreadful curse of death against our souls and the love of a Savior who comes to bring life. 
That's the picture that the Apostle John gives. And this is where we begin in the first six verses, starting at verse 17, Jesus entering the realm of man's dread, the dreadful curse that is against our souls. He's entering the realm of death and darkness. And this is where we pick up on our study of John chapter 11 as Jesus comes to the realm of death that has fallen upon a family that Jesus loved. He is met by the two sisters of the dead man, and their hearts are overcome with grief and uncertainty. They both will question Jesus, exposing the sorrow and fear around the dreadful curse of death that is common to all humanity. And our text opens up with Jesus arriving to the outskirts of Bethany at the point where Lazarus has now been in the grave for four days. And it is here that he walks into man's darkness and gloom because there's death here. Historians are going to point out that four days is somewhat critical to the Jewish mind back then. Because according to rabbinical tradition, when a Jew died, the soul or the spirit lingered around the body for at least three days in the hopes that restoration might be possible. But after three days, the body begins to decompose. It stinks. It's starting to rot And the soul departs to their eternal state because they've given up hope of restoration. Now, that's rabbinical tradition. It's nowhere taught in Scripture, of course, and we have no biblical examples that that ever took place. And therefore, this tradition is nothing more than a fable than it is reality. So it's not hard to imagine why the Jew or the Jewish rabbi would think that after four days this man, Lazarus, isn't coming back to life. That's probably why John included these four days, or perhaps even why Jesus remained away from Lazarus for four days, so that everybody, including the Jew, would clearly understand this body is good and dead, if we can refer to a dead body as good and dead. At the very least, we know Lazarus was gone. His body was beginning to decompose. And because Bethany was near Jerusalem and the family of Lazarus was probably financially well off and a very prominent family within the community, it says that many mourners had come from the city, referring to Jerusalem. This was a well-known family. Many had come to pay their respects. Verse 19 tells us that many Jews had come from the city, the city that had accosted Jesus not a short time before. Those close to the family would often remain near the family for at least a week following death. This would be that time of mourning. The two sisters would be mourning for the next 30 days. And according to Jewish tradition, they would hire professional weepers or professional mourners to come in and wail during this time of mourning. This was an atmosphere of darkness and gloom, to be sure. Word comes to the home of Mary and Martha that Jesus had finally arrived. And we read in verse 20 that Martha goes out to meet him while Mary remains at home with the guests. In reading this story, it can appear to us that both Mary and Martha offer Jesus a subtle chastisement in their words. However, in looking at the context of this passage, this does not seem to be the case. 
Martha does not so much accuse Jesus with her words, but she's, an exp- she's expressing a lament. She's expressing grief that Jesus hadn't been there when they needed him. Going back to the beginning of our story, Lazarus must have died shortly after Jesus had received the message that the sisters had sent to him. Jesus then remained, according to Scripture, across the Jordan River for two more days after hearing of the sickness. Then he traveled toward Bethany after he knew that Lazarus had died, arriving there four days after he passed. Mary and Martha, knowing exactly when Lazarus died, certainly knew that Jesus didn't even have the time to get there before he passed away. Knowing it would take a couple of days for the messenger to arrive at Jesus and then Jesus to travel a couple of days back to Bethany. Therefore, Martha's words to Jesus in verse 21 were expressing grief and regret that Jesus had not been there when they needed him. That he had not been there in time to restore their brother to health. She even follows with words that affirm the close relationship between God and Jesus. And she says to him these affirming words, even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. At this point, she's not thinking in terms of Jesus raising up her brother from the dead. And we see that in the, in the conversation that follows. We're not sure about what blessing Martha thought Jesus could bring them through his relationship to God the Father. We're not really sure what she thought Jesus might ask of the Father, that the Father might grant her. But it is from this exchange that we can sense the grief of Martha at the loss of her brother. And what is even more telling is the compassion and the gentleness of Jesus who takes no offense at her lament but instead he responds to her by proclaiming several promises that he intends to provide at that moment and in the future to all who believe. The comfort and the assurance that he gives to Martha is found in who he is. This is an exchange of care and compassion between two friends in the midst of deep grief. And it was in this conversation that Jesus informs Martha of what is about to take place with her brother. And this brings us to the next five verses, beginning at verse 23, where Jesus is extending the hope of a believer's destiny. In view of the promises of eternal life that is communicated in this section of John chapter 11, verses 23 to 27 are the very heart of the chapter. Even before we get to the miracle itself, This is the heart of the chapter. And it's the spiritual reality behind the miracle of Lazarus' resurrection. We can also say these verses express the power of the gospel that we embrace by faith. This chapter demonstrates the greatest confidence in our Christian belief because it shows us that Jesus Christ the one sent by God, the one who holds the power to give life where death has left humanity utterly hopeless and helpless in themselves. Richard Phillips, in his commentary, writes these words, The gospel of John is sometimes called the gospel of belief. 
And if there is one place above all where this gospel most powerfully summons us to faith in Jesus Christ, it might be here. Can there be a greater reason to believe on Jesus than his claim to hold the key of the problem of death? Phillips is right. There can be no greater confidence that you and I have, no better reason to believe in Jesus than to know he holds the power over death. Leon Morris writes that this passage that we're about to examine is one of the greatest declarations in the gospel. And we can affirm this because of who Jesus presents himself to be in these words and the promises that he can deliver by the resurrection power that he demonstrates in this miracle. So I want to look at two points here this morning in this particular section. Number one, the power of the person of Jesus Christ, who he declares himself to be. And second, the power of his promises. Beginning with the declaration of Christ in verse 25 and the affirmation of that declaration by Martha in verse 27, this is where we begin with the power of his person as Jesus declares himself to be the giver of life. Martha clearly shows her lack of understanding and her concern over the deadly events of the past few days. She doesn't understand and she's overwhelmed with grief. Jesus then makes three promises that are based on who he is, and we'll examine those promises in just a moment. But first, we must consider the power of Christ, who he declares himself to be. Verse 25, Jesus proclaims the fifth of the seven great I am declarations in John's gospel. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus has already declared himself to be the bread of life, the light of the world. He is the door to the sheepfold. And in the last chapter, he is the good shepherd. But here he declares, I am the resurrection and the life. This is a clear statement of the deity of Jesus Christ in that only God can restore life from death and only God can grant grant life that is eternal. Only God can make such a claim and follow that claim with the power to actually call a corpse out of the grave. Anybody can claim they are the resurrection and the life, but only God can make that claim and stand before a tomb and call out the dead. As we have observed before, the use of the I am declaration draws from the Old Testament proclamation of God to Moses that he is the one that existed from eternity past. He continues to exist into the endless days of eternal glory. Jesus says, I, I am the resurrection and the life. And that fifth declaration is perhaps the most profound in that Jesus is saying that he is the God that restores life out of death and he is the God that is the source of unending life. If Jesus is the I am of the Old Testament, as he's declaring here, then he is the God that breathed life into the nostril of his creation. He is the God that holds all things together by the power of his word, because in him all the fullness of deity dwells, as the Apostle Paul wrote the Colossian believers in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Colossians. And Jesus then challenges Martha, do you believe this? 
Jesus questioned her in this manner because he had just made clear that the power of his resurrection life is for those who believe that he is the resurrection and the life. And in this regard, what is implied here is that Lazarus was a believer because he was about to experience resurrection and life. Martha then responds in verse 27, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. That statement of faith parallels Peter's confession of Christ back in Matthew 16. And in it, Martha was saying that she believes that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the Son of God. And he was sent into the world as the Old Testament prophesied. And he affir- she affirms that he indeed is the resurrection and the life that he just claimed to be. Her confession that Jesus has come into the world having been sent by God is now being represented as Jesus entered into Bethany, a town that is reeling from the death of Lazarus. And in stating her belief in these words, she is affirming his declaration to be the God that has come to restore life from death, who grants life eternal. And yet, Martha doesn't even understand the full impact of that. She doesn't even fully understand what Jesus means or meant when he said, this man, your brother, will rise again. She knows little of the cross where the Lord's own death is going to occur, and when he will rise from the grave himself, she seems to understand little of the resurrection of her own brother. In these verses, Jesus not only identifies himself as the the resurrection power, but he promises to execute that power on behalf of all who believe. This is the power of his person. He is the resurrection and the life. And Jesus follows that by making certain promises because of who he is. We see three promises here. Verse 23, 25, and verse 26. Jesus put his power on display. And this is what he declared he would do back in verse 4, isn't it? When he prophesied of the raising of Lazarus. The sickness of Lazarus, this was all for the glory of God and that he would be glorified by this. He would be glorified by the power to raise from the dead. He would be further glorified by the faith that that miracle would produce in his own people. The resurrection power of Jesus Christ is then displayed in three promises that are made here, beginning with Lazarus's resurrection power. Here is a corpse with no power at all, no life, no vitality. And because of who Jesus is, he will breathe life. He will command power, resurrection power, into this man that is four days dead. Now, because Martha is uncertain of what can be done about the death of her brother, Jesus answers that concern by telling her, This is what I'm about to do. Verse 23, your brother will rise again. We know what Jesus means by that because we've read the story, haven't we? Jesus means at this moment, I'm going to raise this man to life. But Martha, being a good Jew 
who believed in the coming or the future resurrection, like all Jews did, with the exception of the Sadducees, who interestingly enough are going to come up at the end of this chapter. Martha affirmed that she knew that what would happen to her brother would happen at the latter time. Well, sure, I believe in the resurrection. And when that time comes, my brother will rise again. But Jesus challenged her to look beyond the promise of a future resurrection to see who he is. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe, Martha? Do you believe? What Jesus wanted Martha to understand, even before the miracle itself, is that he is the giver of life. And the divine power that she would witness as Jesus called Lazarus out of his grave, she would also witness as Jesus would walk out of his own grave. Go back to chapter 10 and remember what Jesus said in verse 17 and 18. He said, I laid down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. Jesus would use the resurrection of Lazarus to demonstrate the power of his own resurrection just a few days later. And in Romans chapter 10, Galatians chapter 1, we read that God the Father raised up his son. In Romans chapter 8 verse 11, we read this morning, the Spirit of God has raised Jesus from the dead. But Jesus said he has the authority to take up his life. It is the mystery of the triune God, Father, Son, Spirit, working in perfect harmony to restore life where death has ended life, where death has robbed life. Jesus had raised to life who had died before. And I suspect we remember this story out of Matthew chapter 9. It was the official, the synagogue official's daughter that had died. But Lazarus was much more dramatic in that he had been dead for four days. Some could have used that young daughter of being a fresh kill. She wasn't really dead. Her body was still warm. She just kind of passed out. You can't make that claim with Lazarus. Four days in the tomb. And Jesus openly displayed his resurrection power in a very public way so that his life-giving glory would be clearly seen and understood. Mary and Martha are going to witness that power in just a few moments. And therefore, Lazarus was a sampling, if you will, of the Lord's resurrection power. He promised to Martha, Lazarus will rise. Second, Jesus promises physical resurrection power. Verse 25, he who believes in me will live even if he dies. Notice that comment, even if or because of death. Like Lazarus, all men will eventually die. What's unique about Lazarus is he died twice. But he's looking forward to another resurrection the resurrection of the body. We could say the physical resurrection power of Christ. We could say the bodily resurrection power of Jesus Christ. This is a reference to the resurrection of the body that is yet to come for all who believe. 
Paul wrote to the church in Corinth that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. What he means by this is that at death, the spirit of the believer goes immediately to be in the presence of the Lord. Paul wrote to the church in Philippi of the same thing, saying that to die or depart and be with Christ is the far better thing. He knows that if he were to die, the spirit would immediately go to be in the presence of Christ, surrounded by his eternal glory. But the body has nonetheless died, and it's placed into the ground. And according to the promise of Christ, he will raise that physical body to life again. And it's going to be nothing like the frail body of flesh that has passed away. There are passages like John chapter 14 that remind us of this coming resurrection. But I want to draw your attention to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is one of the favored passages that a pastor might use at a graveside with somebody that has passed away in Christ. Because this is a promise that Jesus made to those who have died that believe in him. Now, the Thessalonian believers were under persecution. And some of their own believing friends and relatives had passed away. And they were concerned about those passed away because they thought, had Christ already come? Had the resurrection already taken place? Had he forgotten about these ones that are in the grave? So Paul writes these words of assurance, reminding them of the promise of Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection and the life, by writing these words, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. Paul writes to the church, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, which we do, even so God will bring with him, with Christ, those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Well, these passages and others describe the return of Christ and the physical resurrection of the body of believers, it's 1 Corinthians 15 that tells us a little something, gives us a snapshot, if you will, of what will be changed in that physical bodily resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 42 to 44, Paul writes, So also is the resurrection of the dead. He's talking about the resurrection of the physical body of the believer. It is sown a perishable body. That's obvious. It died. It perished. We're all going to hit that point, aren't we? The body's going to give out. It's going to die. But what Christ raises up will be imperishable. It will never die again. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. We've heard the expression, death with dignity. There is no such thing. Death strips us of honor. When Christ returns and raises that body out of the ground, it's going to be raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It's going to be raised up in power. It is sown a natural body. It's going to be raised up a spiritual body. When I say Christ is promising a physical resurrection power, I qualify that because I don't really know what that physical thing is going to be apart from what the Word of God has shared with us here in 1 Corinthians 15. 
But we do know it will be glorious. It will be unending. Life will never again be robbed from that body. And all who believe in Jesus Christ look forward to that promise. Yes, this body will die. But Christ is going to raise it up out of the ashes of the ground. And he's going to create something permanent, eternal, glorious, and spiritual. This is the promise that Jesus makes to all who believe in him. There's a third promise here in John chapter 11. And we might refer to this as the spiritual resurrection power of Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection and the life. John 11, verse 26, And everyone who lives and believes in me will what? Never die. Now that almost seems like a contradiction to the previous statement. But Jesus is now talking about a different resurrection. In the previous statement, he's talking about the resurrection of the body that at one time will die. Now he's saying, everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And says to Martha, do you believe this? Jesus makes a distinction here between the resurrection that experienced death and the resurrection that will never experience death. The body will die and it will be raised again. But the believer who has come to faith in Christ has been spiritually made alive. And that spirit will never, ever experience death. This is a resurrection that every true believer has already experienced. If you're here in faith in Christ right now, you have been raised spiritually. Paul gives to us a picture of this in Ephesians chapter 2, where we have prior to Christ, prior to faith in Christ, been described as spiritually dead in our trespasses and sin. But then in Ephesians 2 and verse 4, the apostle Paul writes, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, there's that love coming into the realm of death and darkness again. Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Spiritually, you've been raised up. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him, with Christ. Seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. The glory of this resurrection is that once the spirit of the believer has been made alive, it's never going to die. It's never going to be separated from the love of Christ, Romans 8.39. It's never going to face the condemnation of God, Romans 8, verse 1. It's never going to face the darkness of God's eternal judgment and the wrath of God against our sin, 1 John 4.10. It is a spirit that will never die. In these verses, we see Jesus enter the realm of man's greatest uncertainty and fear, the death that all men face. And he brings the promise of eternal life by faith as he prepares to demonstrate his own resurrection power over his beloved friend, Lazarus. In this final part of our study, this is going to take us then to verse 28 through the end of the passage that we're going to study today, the next 10 verses, where Jesus enters into this realm of darkness with compassion empathizing 
with the sorrow of humanity's darkness. Martha returns to her home and calls Mary away from the other guests and quietly lets her know that Jesus would like to see her as well. Mary quickly walks to where Jesus is on the outskirts of town where he had been talking with Martha. Now the Jews who were in the house to give support to Mary and Martha, they see her leave quickly. They presume she's going to the tomb, so they get up and go with her to be a support, to mourn with her. Now apparently Martha had informed Mary where she could find Jesus. And we might assume that Jesus told Martha that he would like to visit with Mary and he's going to wait there for her. So when Mary arrives, notice what she does. She falls at his feet and repeats the words of her sister, almost the exact words. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, John does not record a conversation between Mary and Martha or Mary and Jesus as he did with Martha. So we don't know the details of what they may have talked about between them, nor is Mary's faith in Christ verbalized as Martha had done. But our faith is evidenced in her quick response to the call of Jesus, her humility in falling at his feet and confessing him to be Lord. One author wrote of Mary that her faith expresses itself in her instant attraction to his presence. She comes at once. What John certainly does describe here is a scene of sorrow and weeping. Mary's grief is even seen as she collapses at his feet. Several writers have noticed that every time we see Mary, she's at the feet of Jesus. In Luke, she's at the feet of Jesus learning from him. In the next chapter that we're going to study, John chapter 12, she's at the feet of Jesus honoring him with perfume. But here she's at the feet of Jesus grieving. Her heart is broken. She's filled with sorrow, weeping, despondent. She is sad that her brother is dead. She is clearly disappointed that Jesus did not come to Bethany in time. And the people that followed Mary to Jesus were also overcome with grief. They're weeping with her. This is a scene of darkness. This is humanity's scene. This is our scene under the dreadful curse. Verse 33 tells us that Jesus observes this scene. And it says he's deeply moved in his spirit. And troubled. Notice those words because they're used again in verse 38. He's troubled within. In verse 35, he weeps along with them and he continues to be troubled in his spirit, even to verse 38. When I was a young boy, I remember my dad leading us in our nightly devotions. And one night he asked us to come the next night to family devotions with our favorite memory verse. My younger brother Jim picked verse 35. And I don't think it was because he was struck with the the sorrow of the Savior. Verse 35 is easy to memorize and to remember, but it's hard to explain. Since John does not tell us why Jesus was weeping, nor we don't immediately see the reason for his troubled spirit here. It's not for Lazarus. We know that much. Jesus has already declared he will rise again. He's not there shedding tears and troubled in spirit for the man that he's about to raise from the dead. So his tears are not the same as the mourners 
that are there grieving with Martha and Mary. It could be that Jesus was feeling the grief of those around him, weeping with those who weep, feeling their sorrow in his humanity. It could be that Jesus was weeping for those Jews in the crowd that would witness his resurrection glory and yet in a couple of days would call for its execution. We know that when Jesus walked into Jerusalem, just before he was sacrificed, Jesus lamented over the city. Remember how he said, I would have gathered you under my wings like a hen gathers its chicks, but you would not have it. In Luke chapter 19, it says that Jesus wept over the city. What we can understand from verse 35 I think, is that Jesus was feeling great compassion for his people. And I say that because, as Martha has already declared, Jesus is the promised Messiah. And we read of that Messiah in Isaiah 53, these words, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. Is it not likely that in Bethany he was carrying those griefs and sorrows on himself? He saw his people struck with grief and sorrow. David wrote in Psalm 6, The Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. It is said of the Lord in Psalm 9, He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Death was the result of man's sin, and death brings sorrow, brings grief. It's our greatest loss, life itself. And Jesus was the only hope of these mourners. He would show them the power of his resurrection glory, and still many would reject him. They would despise him. They would demand his death on a Roman cross. And yet here is Jesus feeling their pain, feeling their misery. The reason that Jesus came to Bethany and the reason that he came to our world was out of his compassion for his people who are held captive to the misery of sin and death. Sin had robbed his creation of the life that he had breathed into it. And in his humanity, he felt empathy for our sorrow, for our grief. William Barclay, the Christian historian, views the tears of Christ this way. He writes, so deeply did Jesus enter into the wounded hearts and the sorrows of his people that his heart was wrung with anguish. Jesus asks of Mary, or perhaps of the mourners that are with her, where have you laid him? It's now on the mind of Jesus to raise his friend to life, and then he weeps. So his tears are not for Lazarus. Some of those present assumed that Jesus wept because of his love for Lazarus, while others seemed to mock him by saying he restored sight to a blind man. Why couldn't he just come and heal this guy? But to understand the troubled spirit within Jesus, at least in part, or at least getting a glimpse of it, we need to step back and look at this scene as a divinely orchestrated miracle Events that would foreshadow the glory of the cross. And there we need to see the Savior walking into Bethany's grief as a picture of God's Son stepping into our world of darkness, a world that is filled with sin and death. 
The grief and the sorrow of the Savior at this moment is described by John with words that go beyond sadness as the other mourners were experiencing. The words that John uses here in verse 33 and verse 38 is the idea of snorting with anger or agitation. Jesus was in the midst of the effects of man's sin with the full grief, sorrow, and helplessness that comes with man's unavoidable death. Adding to this, Jesus was in the midst of a people that would not see him as the light of God that has come into the world. He knew that even after demonstrating his divine power and giving clear evidence that he is the resurrection and the life, many would deny, reject, and seek his death. Jesus was surrounded by the creation that he had breathed life into, and sin had brought the curse of death and sorrow. In his heart, he feels more than grief. He's agitated. He's feeling the indignation that his, in, his creation is in, and it even brings him to tears for us. Even now, Jesus is filled with a holy zeal to rescue those whom he loves from the dreadful curse against their souls. What I find stirring in this picture is that our Savior feels for us. He feels for us very deeply. He is filled with a holy indignation to resurrect life where sin has caused death. What Jesus feels is not only anger here, it's empathy as well. His spirit is not just agitated on her behalf. He's being moved with compassion and sympathy. When Jesus took on humanity, he experienced what we experienced. He felt what we feel. And like a good shepherd, Jesus was angered by the threat and the hurt that has come against his flock that he loves. He's moved with empathy and compassion to rescue his people from the greatest danger that we face. Death has hurt one of his own sheep and brought intense grief and hopelessness to others in his flock. So Jesus says, I will raise him up again. But what he is showing to you and I this morning is that he indeed is the resurrection of the life. He came into our world with empathy and compassion, agitated in his spirit, for the plight that all of us are under. And he promises to raise us to life again. So Jesus demands to know where Jesus or where Lazarus had been laid, and he wept. And I believe this is a good place for us to pause in our study because it leaves us waiting, doesn't it? And I know that if we're a believer here today, we have already been spiritually raised to life, but we wait his return. We wait for the Savior to come again and to raise up the body as he promised to do. Every believer has been spiritually raised to newness of life, and the spirit of the disciple of Christ has been made eternally alive, never, never to taste death. But physical death will come for each of us. And none of us are excited to reach that point, are we? But the reality is, our Savior felt that grief, and he promised to bring life. And he will. We anticipate 
our dreadful end, and many are going to live in fear of it. But Jesus came to our world. He came to our realm of sin and death to bring us life because he is the resurrection and the life. And it is good for us to close by stepping back and look at the miracle of John 11, where fallen humanity is here represented, and Jesus Christ is shown to be the one who comes to give us life. Therefore, I want to leave us with these three thoughts this morning. Number one, the fact that Jesus came. He came to Bethany, and as Martha proclaimed, he came to this world. He came to us. What Jesus did in coming into Bethany was a picture of his coming to our world to bring life where there is death. Even Martha confessed this of Jesus, that he is the promised Messiah, the Son of God who came to this world to bring the resurrection life that he had just promised to be. This is the call of the church as well. It's the mission that is given to us. He came to bring life. And this is why we're called to come to the world, to come to our families, our communities, our places of work, and to share the hope of Jesus Christ, to declare he is the resurrection and the life. We're to take the message of hope and life into a world of darkness, a world of grief, a world of death. And we're to declare that there is hope in the midst of this dreadful curse. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And secondly, then, that Jesus saves. He does bring life. He promised it. He showed it in Lazarus' resurrection. He's caused that resurrection into every one of us that believe. And as perhaps there are unbelievers here listening to my voice, as Jesus would say to Martha, do you believe this? Is this your confidence? Is this your faith? As a gospel church, we are in this world to proclaim Jesus as the giver of life and the only one who can rescue the souls of men from eternal death. Eternal life is only promised to those who believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who has come into this world to give men and women resurrection life. Do you believe? And third, we read that Jesus wept. He wept. Jesus was filled with a holy indignation against sin and death and with empathy towards his fallen creation. He gives life. The church needs this holy indignation and compassion for the unsaved. And I have to say this of myself because oftentimes I can look at those outside of the Christian community that despise us, that object to us, that ridicule us, and I don't feel the same empathy that the Savior feels towards the world of darkness. And I need that. I need to feel that indignation. I need to be agitated within my spirit, to be filled with empathy and compassion for dead souls. And this can be challenging for us since we can feel a certain anger towards the world that is more akin to hatred. Jesus shows what it is to have a holy compassion, a zeal and empathy towards those who are, who are facing the dreadful curse of sin. And we have the answer, don't we? 
Jesus is the resurrection and the life. May God give to the church that empathy and that cat compassion to preach that Jesus. Father in heaven, we are privileged to gather together under the name of your Son as believers and as ones who have received resurrection life. Father, we're privileged to bear the gospel message to the world around us. We need that kind of, we need that kind of compassion that you have, that kind of zeal. And I pray that you will fill this church with that compassion and empathy for the lost. I pray for those that are listening to my voice this morning, that perhaps are not believers, that they might be brought to faith in your son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the resurrection and the life. And Father, because you are a God that saves, because you are a God that loves, I pray, Father, that we would become faithful worshipers of you, to love you more passionately, to serve you with more devotion. Thank you for loving us as sinners. We give thanks, praise, and worship in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.